This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. The great boreal forests of the planetary north form an almost unbroken ring at the top of the planet, Earth's deep green crown at the edge of the white Arctic north. Ben Rollins has visited these forests on foot, by canoe, and under the perpetual sunless indigo sky of what are supposed to be cold, snowbound winters. And here is what he has found. Quote, This bright green halo is moving unnaturally fast, crowning the planet with a laurel of needles and leaves, turning the white Arctic green, he writes. The migration of the tree line north is no longer a matter of inches per century. Instead, it is hundreds of feet every year. The trees are on the move. And they shouldn't be. That is from Ben Rollins' new book. It's called The Tree Line, The Last Forest and the Future of Life on Earth. And Rollins joins us from Gloucester, England. Ben Rollins, welcome to On Point. Hello, thanks for having me. I first of all wonder if you could help engage uh, all our senses, our eyes, our ears, our, our, our sense of smell, even touch, and just describe to me, uh, for example, the, the forests of Alaska that you visited. What, what's it like being in the spruce forests of Alaska? So in, uh, in North America... Um, I, in, in fact, I, let me, let me tell you about that, um, just across the border in, in, uh, in Canada with the Anishinaabe people, um, in the forests of Pimachuanaki and those, uh, old growth forests, um, that have been there ever since the retreat of the, the last ice age, the ice sheet at the end of the last ice age have succeeded and grown and followed their own algorithm over uh, thousands of years and walking through I felt a bit like I was underwater um, there are these huge springy um, broccoli heads of lichen uh, almost up to your knees uh, and it feels like you're walking on a sponge and then meanwhile there's all these different layers there's the uh, the shrubs there's the uh, Labrador tea there's the, the different kinds of berries and then above you of course is is not just the spruce but the jack pine that goes alongside it um, and every time you you move you have these shards of light as if you're on stage and and you're walking through a kind of strobe uh, light while at the same time your ears are full of the humming of all these different insects the calls of different birds um, and then there's the susurration of the trees themselves, and every tree has a different noise as the wind moves through the needles in different ways. Um, so those old growth experiences are um, you know, very, uh, I think, few and far between for, for some of us. Certainly us in England, we don't have very many of them at all. Um, but that, it's kind of all-consuming and, and very, very moving. Hmm. Uh just the, the, the way you're describing those sort of shards of light and the susurration of the trees, it's, it's, it's absolutely taking me there. Uh, I am somewhat familiar with the, the forests of Alaska, but you also visited many parts of that virtually unbroken ring that we're talking about um, in, in the northern forests. 
Describe to me what it was like in, you know, in places that we would be less familiar with. Like, I think the, the largest boreal forest on planet Earth uh, is in Russia. Tell me about that. Yes, Siberia is half of the, the boreal forest, or possibly even more than that. Um, and they call it the taiga. Um, and the, I, I went to, to several different places, but the most um, stunning and, and memorable for me was the most northerly trees on the planet um, at a place called Arimas, which is 72 degrees north on the Tymir Peninsula, which is a kind of bulb of land about the size of the UK that points towards the North Pole at the very top of Siberia. And that's as far as trees have got um, up to now on the planet. And we arrived there, um, and this was kind of the climax of my pilgrimage to the tree line, the growing limit of trees on, on, the, on the earth, um, just before dawn um, in, in February. And the, the whole of the, um, the ground was kind of blue as the, as the sun was coming up. And then these, the larch trees, it was exclusively larch, dihurian larch, um, were turning orange as the sun was coming up and it, there was not a breath of wind and we stopped and got down from the vehicle which was this enormous sort of Russian tank basically called a trekol um, and the, your feet crunch in the in the snow at minus 45 and there you know in fact all our feet were, were crunching on top of this complete it looked like a kind of party had happened the night before there was blood on the floor from a uh, obviously a hare that had got taken by a wolf or a fox and then there was fox tracks and wolf tracks and wolverine tracks and all sorts of stuff and the the uh, you could see then at the very edge of the forest you could see the tundra stretching away this kind of red gold plain whilst we were still in the dark in the forest and it it was i must say yeah um quite a sight uh, after three days of driving and no sleep, <laughs> um, but a, a very, uh, yeah, a, a moving climax to, to my journey anyway. Can you tell me more about uh, the the larch trees there? I, it's, they're species that I'm not familiar with. So the, the Dahurian larch is a bit like um, a tamarack. It's a species of, of tamarack in North America. Um, and it is frozen for most of the year. Um, and the, what has enabled the larch to survive that far north is this incredible ability to metabolize moisture. So it, it doesn't really like water. It doesn't like being waterlogged because one of the ways that larch survive through the winter is by breathing through their roots as well. And they can extract moisture from ice. And they can also, when it gets colder again in the winter, they can turn the water in their cells to ice very, very slowly. So they supercool it and it vitrifies, it becomes glass uh, with no air bubbles in it so that when the cold strikes, those ice crystals don't form and then cause what's called freezing injury. Um, and it's the most amazing resilient tree. It can go down to, um, in a lab, it's gone down to, I think, minus 200 degrees. Um, and then it can also survive without water for long periods of time in the drought. But what's particularly interesting about the forest of Arimas is that uh, normally in a, in a forest, all the trees are spaced according to light because everybody needs their own light. Um, and, and you have a kind of crowded competition in the canopy. Um, but the critical factor in this forest, so that far north, is actually... Um, 
access to um, the, the, the roots underground. So the forest is completely spaced, um, in the, very spaced out. There's lots of space between all the trees because each tree needs uh, has only got a couple of inches of, of soil um, to, to, to spread its roots in because, of course, there's permafrost underneath. So each tree has an equivalent amount of biomass under the surface of the, of the soil as it does above so that's actually the geography of, of that forest and the, and they're all connected so it's actually one tree um, they're all joined because they they sprout vegetatively underground um, they don't reproduce through seeds because it, they don't have enough uh, enough growing time in the summer so there's i mean I, I could go on but the biology of the of each species is just you know a book in itself um it's remarkable what you just described. And if I may, I just want to read a little paragraph of how you describe uh, the larch here. You say, all larch have a noble air. They're fine, delicate needles, bright green in spring, lustrous orange in autumn, contrasting with a gray, somewhat scaly bark, is like that of the Scots pine, which we'll talk about uh, a little bit later, Ben. Uh, in their massed ranks, they can blaze across the hillside. It's the only deciduous conifer. A corkscrew top allows every branch the maximum amount of light, each limb sweeping down in elegant curves that appear to drip with needles. And in the spring, it puts out small purplish cones resembling candies, which slowly turn orange with the year. Now, the other thing that you say about the larch is that it has been recognized, and quite some time ago, you, you talk about who, who re first recognized this, that the larch's relationship with the ice, that ability that you talked about before, was the, what, the entire foundation of the Siberian landscape as it's as we know it? Um, as far as we know, yes. Um, there's two main things that, that govern the distribution of, um, of the larch in, in Siberia. The first is the permafrost, um, and the second is humans. So what if you go far back enough, it seems in the archaeological record that the, the tiger of Siberia was actually a savanna with sparse um, elements of forest, <clears throat> and then the humans, um, a perfect, basically a perfect environment for megafauna like mammoths and elk um, and certain species of horses. And then the, when the humans came on the scene and they took out too many of those megafauna, the larch spread like a weed. And the tree which outcompeted the others was the one that was best adapted to the permafrost that underlay the savannah. So, in fact, Sergei Zimanov, one of the main uh, ecologists of Siberia that I spoke to, um, sort of granddaddy, as it were, of, of Russian, um, Russian permafrost research, calls the larch a weed. Um, and it hmm. is almost exactly contiguous with the, the spread of permafrost. So it's that, it is that relationship that has shaped this huge biome, which, of course, we all rely on and has, you know, huge significance for uh, planetary functions in the Northern Hemisphere, well, the world as a whole. Mm. Well, that's what we're going to, we're going to talk about that uh, throughout the, the remainder of the show. But we have about 30 seconds left uh, before this first break here, Ben. Mm -hmm. For you, honestly, what is, how would you describe what the magic of these trees is? Um, for me, it's, the the way that they uh, it, well it's how much we don't know yeah it's the way that they talk to each other it's the the relationships with other species it's you know this incredible mystery that we're only just beginning to scratch the surface of. Mm. 
Well, today I'm speaking with Ben Rollins. He's author of the new book, The Tree Line, The Last Forest and the Future of Life on Earth. And we'll talk more about what that future might be when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking with Ben Rollins. He's the author of a new book. It's called The Tree Line, The Last Forest and the Future of Life on Earth. And that tree line, by the way, is the line at which the great boreal forests of the planet's north meet the Arctic, and it has been moving. That line has been moving rapidly north, much more rapidly in recent years than it has over the past several thousand years. Now, uh, Ben, you organize the book uh, by essentially by, by location and tree species, right? We, we just talked about the larch in Siberia. There's also uh, the spruce in Alaska, the birch in Norway, the poplar in Canada, and uh, the Scots pine in Scotland. So I'm, I want, throughout the hour, I'm going to want to hear more about these individual species. But, but let's take a step back uh, first and talk about the importance of the boreal forest as a whole, for the planet, because I think, you know, people often talk about forests as the as the lungs of planet Earth, and our minds first go to the Amazon, right, as as the most important uh, lungs of of Earth, but that's not true. So tell us about the role that the boreal plays. Yes, it's 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 partially true, but of course the boreal has a third of the trees on planet Earth. It has far more trees than than all the other uh, all the rainforests of the world put together, um, and it isn't just um, oxygen. There's so many other functions. So I think the first thing to understand is is the scale. Um, the hu- I mean, this is we're talking about half of Russia, half of the North American continent. This is an enormous amount of land which is covered in this in this forest. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, the situation of where it is ringing um, the, the northern hemisphere in that way uh, has a, a, is critical because you have 
these boundaries between the ice and the, the boreal and then between the temperate um, savanna lands and the boreal. And you get huge uh, differentiations in temperature gradient and in transpiration. So those trees are breathing every day and every night. Um, and obviously every summer and every winter, there's another cycle going on. Um, and that creates... Um, a lot of uh, moisture going up into the atmosphere along with all sorts of other um, vol volatile chemicals. And you get these um, huge weather patterns that then are, um, are driven by the function of the forest. So the jet stream has a clear relationship um, with the breathing of the forest, um, as well as the temperature gradient between the ice and the forest. You then also have um, the huge function, cleansing function that these trees perform. So what I think is often missed is that it's not just um, they're breathing in carbon dioxide and breathing out oxygen, but that oxygen, when it's transpired, <clears throat> the trees are also shooting out all sorts of cleansing chemicals, antibiotics. Um, they're trapping uh, all sorts of particulates. They're cleaning the atmosphere like a comb and performing all these functions that are humming away in the background that we're scarcely aware of. And the last one is water, of course. So you're, you may have heard this, uh, your listeners may have heard of this concept of flying rivers. Um, but when the trees uh, transpire, they're creating a vacuum, and that vacuum sucks in air, especially from the oceans. And sometimes, uh, so from the coast, for example, of Alaska, all the way inland, that rain may have fallen 10 times and then been retranspired and sucked inland again. So the trees are actually like a kind of conveyor belt pulling water inland and they have an intimate relationship both with other parts of the continent. So there are teleconnections, for example, between the boreal and the Midwest grain belt, also between the Amazon and the West African monsoon. And then lastly, that water is discharged into the Arctic Ocean, the Pacific, the Atlantic. It has a key role in the Arctic pump and the, the overturning of, uh, of, of the ocean. So it has a, it's absolutely essential role in the, the climate of our northern hemisphere. Hmm. I'm going to hope that was not a fire alarm that I heard behind you there, Ben. <laughs> um, but uh, you, in, no, the, in the book... The you... BBC. <laughs> In the uh, in the book you write again. I just want to <laughs> emphasize the vastness of this uh, forest system that we're talking about. That here, here's how you describe it: it covers one fifth of the globe and contains one third of all the trees on Earth. It's the second largest biome or living system on the planet after the ocean um, and all those planetary systems you just you just described water oxygen atmospheric circulation ocean currents polar winds are influenced by the uh, by the boreal and yet how much do we understand ben of how climate change is impacting this critical planetary system um, well, the answer is it's patchy. Um, and in some places, we understand more uh, than others. And actually, Alaska and North America is one of the places where um, this has been studied in most depth um, and for the longest period of time. So we we do have a um, quite a clear picture of, of, of what's happening. Um, the it, It's quite easy to see where the tree line is moving. It's 
less easy to understand um, sort of the, the implications for carbon sequestration, uh, permafrost collapse and things like that. Those are the much more um, intangible unknowns. Mm. Um, but I think it's fair to say we know enough um, that we should be really alarmed and we should be doing all we can to protect it. But what was stunning to me um, was this, you know, we're, we're used to, to this sort of idea of, you know, trusting the science and that science probably has most of the answers. And <clears throat> certainly the activists are always saying we just need to listen to the IPCC and the climate scientists and so on. But actually how rich the debate is among scientists and how not about the fact of climate change, but about how it's unfolding and um, and what, we are, what we're modelling and what we're not modelling. Um, and in particular, I think the one big sort of shock for me was that you know, there are three stations in Siberia that are monitoring methane release, for example. Um, and methane is absolutely the joker in the pack in terms of uh, climate forcing and temperature. So we, you know, in some cases we know a lot and in other cases there are there are very big gaps which, um, you know, which, which give us, should give us pause. Hmm. Well, you know, one thing that... Uh that studying the boreal forests more deeply does allow us to to get a sense of is how have the forests reacted to climatic climate change in the past, right? I mean, because we are looking at essentially um, an ancient ecosystem that has undergone. You write about it beautifully that essentially it's ridden the tide of of ice as it advances and retreats with various ice ages. So can you talk about that a little bit and and, and perhaps even through the example of what you saw not so far from where you are uh, in England when you went up to Scotland? Um, which is an interesting place to sort of think about this question of how the the boreal forests have have changed over sort of geologic timescales. What did you see there? Yeah, so um, if you imagine um, uh, the Earth as a you know, essentially like an ice cream, and the ice melting or, or dripping down to the la- mid latitudes and then retreating again, every hundred thousand years for the last sort of thirty million at least. Um, the ice has come down from the from the Arctic, and then it's gone back again. It's 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 a bit like rising and falling like breath, and the and the green tide of the trees has followed and retreated, followed and retreated. So that's why we have these seven species uh, around the world, and why each one is different. These keystone ecosystems, and in the UK it's the Scots pine, is because those trees each time have come from refugia further south. The trees don't spread uh, latitudinally sideways. They they come from the south. So you have these climax ecosystems that are different in each different landmass. Um, so hence the birch in Scandinavia, larch in yeah. Siberia, and so on. Now, in the UK, um, the the archaeological record shows that there was a climax ecosystem of oak uh, on this island, but then uh, pine was introduced by uh, on unnatural timescales, is the way the the geologists put it, um, the archaeologists put it, um, and what that means is that actually it was introduced. The only plausible solution is it was introduced by humans, so. The pine was brought by the Celts coming from Portugal and it made its way up the west coast of the UK, Wales, up to Scotland. Um, And then it met another tree with a different DNA 
um, whose provenance was Kiev in the Ukraine. Um, and there is a myth in Celtic folklore that when the Celts got to the top of Scotland, they met another band of people coming the other way who were, they called them the Red People of the Danube, um, who also obviously had brought their own habitat with them. So now we have two populations, two distinct genetic populations of Scots pine making up the Scots pine forest uh, in, in the UK. Um, and so it was a, it's actually a human, you know, a, oh. a, a sort of partly man-made, uh, man-instituted yeah. uh, succession pattern. Can you, just so describe, can you just describe the Scots pine? Because I, I have to be honest, when I, think, when I think about Scotland and particularly northern Scotland, I'm not envisioning... <laughs> deep green forests. <laughs> no, well this is this is absolutely yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean this is the this is the thing is that we for the last uh, so the Scots pine is is a is a relative of uh, Picea, so it's a relative of the, of the spruce, um similar family. Um but it has this reddish bark and it has very long needles. Um, and it survives up to about 500, 600 years old, usually with various cracks and losing limbs and so on. So they, they always look rather uh, weather-beaten, um, the, the Scots pines that, are, that have lived for a while. And the kind of quintessential tourist picture postcard image of Scotland is a bare green hillside with a single Scots pine. And that's actually entirely unnatural. The only reason uh, usually those single pines have survived is because they were too big for the deer to eat them when they were younger. Mm. Um, and actually, once upon a time, all of the, the hills of Scotland were <clears throat> largely forested with Scots pine, and then we cut them down. Um, and now, especially after the, the Napoleonic Wars and all of the sort of colonial adventures that... Um, my ancestors embarked on. They used a lot of timber, made a lot of ships, and much of that came from Scotland and Ireland. So now we have this completely denuded landscape where the, the deer have been allowed to run riot after the trees have gone, and of course the people were cleared as well. Um, and so we have this sort of uh, what, what looks like this kind of timeless uh, rolling green hills but actually is a completely ruined landscape. Um, and those pines, funnily enough, uh, survive much, much longer when they're in an intact forest. Because just like humans, the, the, the mother granny pines give the resources underground to the babies. And when the seedlings come up and the, the older trees uh, get to the end of their life, they get nutrients from the younger ones. Mm. And so they live much longer. So there's some interesting research about the longevity of pines when they're surrounded by their family. They're actually social creatures. Hmm. You know, you write about how there's evidence of you know, pre preserved pine tissue in Scotland, some of Scotland's bogs that date back, what, 7,000 years? 7,000 years. Yes. Uh, and so, but what I'm wondering is... This chapter, you call it the, the zombie forest. And what does the story of human management of the the pine forests of Scotland uh, and this, you talk about a rewilding effort, essentially, that's going on up there. How does that relate to this bigger picture of um, the tree line moving north um, and, and climate change? So there's, a, there's currently quite a lot of debate around, <clears throat> you know, what... 
what was the history because there are these uh, there's a lot of effort to plant trees and lots of companies are spending a lot of money uh, on planting trees on the assumption that we are rewilding we're taking the forest back to its wild heritage um, meanwhile you have uh, grouse moors and kind of traditional uh, uh, plantation owners and others who are saying forestry plantation owners who are saying um you know, th this is that's not natural. It was never like that. This is this is more natural. Um, and the irony is, it was it was none of those things. It was actually a, an oak forest, and the pine was brought by brought by the humans. But the point about the zombie forest is, it it doesn't really matter anyway because nature has its own algorithm, its own equation. And at the moment, the UK is effectively moving south at a rate of around 12 miles a year. So that's our climate velocity um, based on the temperature. So it's, it's, it's like we're moving towards uh, southern Europe. And, mm. and by at least 2050, if not before, London will have the temperature that Barcelona has had until recently. I mean, Barcelona Good obviously today Lord. is wow. off the charts. But... <laughs> And what that means for the trees is that, you know, up until quite recently, people used to think that the tree line in Scotland was somewhere around about um, 700 metres. So um, what's that in feet? 2,100 feet. Um, but as the tree line now is moving north at quite a rate, it could be that by the end of this century, the Scots pines are below um, the the growing limit for for pines. It'll be too dry. It'll be it'll be too hot. Um, and actually, the Scottish pine forest will have zipped north and will be somewhere in somewhere in Iceland or uh, e e even if it's there, if it can establish in time. So the zombie forest is you know there's all this argument about the rewilding of the Scottish forest, but meanwhile, um, the clock's ticking, unfortunately. For the very forest that's trying to that human beings are trying to that's being brought back, yes. Wow. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And so, therefore, is there the concern that you're raising here is that there are there's likely to be zombie forests elsewhere across that the mass of the boreal forests elsewhere on on planet Earth. Yes, um, and the same thing is happening in Siberia. So you have. Um, in most most species are moving north because they're finding melting tundra, melting permafrost, and and conducive environments where they can spread. What's happening in Siberia is that the larch doesn't like the water, as we mm -hmm. mentioned earlier, and so the at the very northern tip of the forest, the larch is drowning. Um, and it's collapsing. But then on, on the southern end, down towards Mongolia and Kazakhstan, you have these uncontrollable fires and the forest is burning. And then when it comes back, it's not coming back as it did. It's coming back as step. So the forest, in a way, is caught in a vice. It, it's, it can only go so far as the ocean. And from below, it's getting burned and dried. So uh -huh. I'm afraid, yes, there are all those forests are... are Walking Dead, sooner or later. Well, Ben Lawrence is our guest today. We're talking about what he's written in his new book, The Tree Line, The Last Forest and the Future of Life on Earth. And we'll be back in just a moment. This is On Point.
Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Ben Rollins is with us today. He's author of The Tree Line, The Last Forest, and The Future of Life on Earth. Uh, and Ben, before we continue our, our travels with you uh, through this hour, I wanted to note that your previous books were about an entirely different set of topics. You were essentially a war reporter, right? You, you, your book, Radio Congo, Signals of Hope from Africa's Deadliest War, and City of Thorns, Nine Lives in the World's Largest Refugee Camp. What drew you to writing about the world's northern forests instead? Yeah, the connection's not obvious, is it? But actually, there is a thread here, which is that... Um, I used to work in New York at the Social Science Research Council. That was my first job uh, out of university, looking at human security. So that was food, water, ecosystems, um, trying to move away from, at that time, nuclear war and kind of international power politics and stuff like that. But then 9-11 happened, and of course, all the funding went to terrorism. But that remained my interest, and I ended up working for um, in politics and then uh, for for different um, different groups. But for looking at human rights in Africa, which was intimately tied to issues of human security. So the Congo book was about the war and deforestation and people surviving in very difficult circumstances. The City of Thorns refugee uh, camp, the largest in the world at the time, and perhaps soon again with the drought in in the Horn of Africa, was about climate-driven conflict and displacement. So the, the, the switch looking north was I wanted to go to catch a glimpse of the future, to go to another place like the tropics, which is feeling... Uh, the influence of climate change earlier than some of the other temperate zones. So this is 10 years ago. Um, And to see how people are coping and how species are coping and not just the environmental change that awaits the rest of us, but also some of that emotional and psychological landscape Mm. of how people are are adapting and some of the challenges that are going to face us. So I'm essentially interested with how humans cope with difficult circumstances and that's uh, and the changes that are underway. So yeah. that, that was really what what took me north. Okay. So then uh, let's keep going on our travels with you, Ben. I- I'll be honest, I've been having my eyes closed <laughs> for for much of, of this conversation because I really feel like as you talk about the places you've been, we're going there with you. And I'd like to go to Norway now uh, mm. and talk about the downy 
Birch. So first of all, you describe it as unprepossessing, even ugly. <laughs> Tell us about the downy birch. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, I always feel like the downy birch is, is kind of laughing at us. Um, that was how I, how I felt in Norway. And I'm glad you feel that because th- this is a, is a travel book. I want people to, to go to these places to feel the wonder. Yes, there's some climate science and there's some, there's some abrupt warnings in there, but... Um, we have to have wonder and, and, and we have to be humble in the face of the natural world. And, um, and that's what the, the Sami uh, reindeer herders, the only indigenous group registered by the UN in, in Norway, have in abundance. They've been living on the tundra with these birch trees for 10,000 years. And the birch um, provide them with everything. They have uh, a silvery kind of... Um, gnarly bark um, which if you strip it it can provide uh, paper and flour and then these little stubby fingers they look like kind of witchy fingers Um, and then long furry catkins that drip from their branches and then the most spectacular leaves the tiny little emerald green leaves in the springtime but by august september they they go a, a terrific shade of orange and yellow and red um, which the Sami actually used to forecast the the long range weather of the, of the coming huh. uh, the coming the coming winter, and they it, when you see the way that the, the sort of aspect of the of the trees shaped by the wind against the the hillside, it almost looks like there's there are a battalion of soldiers kind of storming the ramparts. <laughs> Um, with their with their shoulders hunched and their arms bunched, and they they look like these kind of um, angry jokers. Um, so that's yeah, that's <laughs> my abiding memory of the birds. Well, so you and you went to Norway what in in the winter, right? And and you describe sort of this dark violet sky, the the looming weight of the mountains and a snow that has finally fallen, much to everyone's. Relief. So tell us what, what what you saw in terms of the, the the ecosystem there. And and this was one of the places where there was perhaps the most visual evidence about the trees moving north. Yes, because the, the birch are, are real pioneers. They they I call them the rock stars of the boreal. They live fast and they die young. Um and they they live generally about seventy to a hundred years. And what's happening there is that for the last 10,000 years, since the last ice age, the the Sami people have been following their reindeer herds over the tundra uh, from the forest to the sea and back again. Um, But now the birch is creeping up out of all the kind of valleys and crevices um, up onto the tundra. It's kind of this, I describe it like an assault, and that's sort of how it looks. and birch is wind pollinated and wind dispersed. So you have these streaks, what look like somebody's sort of painted the the tundra um, where the birch have spread. Um, and of course that confuses the reindeer. It traps more snow. It melts the permafrost, which encourages more vegetation, more microbial activity. Um, the reindeer can't move through the thickets of the birch, so they can't... Uh, they can't migrate as normal. 
And we, what the other thing that happens then is that, that that warmth slightly melts the snow. So you only need to get to minus five to start getting moisture into the snowpack. And then when it freezes at night, it locks the grass of the tundra away from the reindeer, which of course is their food. So we've had huge um, die-offs of reindeer every year for the last five years or so. Um, and not only that, but reindeer are one of the few mammals that can consciously abort their young when they encounter environmental difficulties. So there's also been huge effect on fertility. And the Sami, for the Sami, reindeer is their life. Um, so this, this kind of collapse in the ecosystem is also occasioning a collapse in their culture and their mental health as well. I mean, you call them amongst the first victims of climate change. Is that something that you see? Because you write about many indigenous groups in the book. Is that something that you saw over and over again? I think they are perhaps further along than others mm. because of this independent, this dependence, interdependence um, with, uh, with the reindeer. Um, and and also because their way of life has so far been largely maintained intact. Whereas when you go to Siberia, a lot of those indigenous groups have already um, been crushed to some extent by the Soviet system, which forced them to, to adapt in certain ways or tried to eliminate them or collectivize them into certain villages. Um, and then in North America and Alaska, you've got the terrible legacy of colonialism in in Canada, where uh, the land has been largely stolen or people have had their ancestral lands expropriated. And then, of course, in Alaska, you've got this hydrocarbon compromise, I call it, mm -hmm. um, where, you know, the, it's actually the, often the native corporations that have signed these deals. And so their lifestyle is already 40, 50 years has been accelerating away from a lot of those traditional yeah. practices. So it, it, all these complicated different things happening at the same time and how we kind of make sense of that is uh, is the challenge. Right. And so that's a very important point to make, right? Because it might be easy to just presume, well, trees moving north means more forest uh, and more forest means uh, more oxygen, more carbon sinking, et cetera. But as you just pointed out, mm -hmm. we've seen in, in places, Siberia being the other big one that I can think of, where that warming might mean the trees are moving north, but you know the, the tundra is also thawing, right? That permafrost is thawing at a faster rate than, um, than the forest can absorb the carbon that's being released. So it is a very complex relationship or series of relationships we're talking about here. But, you know, Ben, I, I, I grew up um, on the West Coast of the United States and spent a lot of my younger years hiking around the old growth forests of the Pacific Northwest uh, and, you know, in the, the redwood forests of California. And just last summer or last spring, I, my family and I, we went down to uh, the Southwest and and literally just went to marvel at the wonder of the bristlecone pine, right? Just to stand in front mm. of trees that have been rooted in the earth for two to 3,000 years. And mm. I, I, I've always felt about forests that perhaps this is too, this is over-romanticizing them. But, you know, even as you describe them as having been, at the, they're riding the, the tide of ice millennia after millennia. The forests move, they change, they adapt. Yes, we have mm. both used them and exploited them as humans. 
But the long-term story here isn't necessarily what is going to happen to the boreal forests. They have they have done what they needed to do to survive over tens of thousands of years. The story you're telling is what are we going to do? What is going to happen to us as we watch the forest so rapidly change? That's exactly right. And um, the even sort of the example of Scotland we spoke about, the Scots pine uh, climate niche will be shifting and moving north, but something else will follow because the logic of the forest is a logic of ecological succession. There will always be something. Nature's algorithm is infinite um, and infinitely complicated. Um, and so all of these, what we're seeing is, in effect, geological time speeded up. So it's not that, uh, exactly as you say, it's not that the forests are, are disappearing, it's just that they're changing faster than they otherwise would have done. And the, I, for me, what that means, um, uh, the, the question it poses to us is, is uh, what's our relationship to our habitat? And because we've become so disconnected from our habitat, particularly in the affluent global north, but also increasingly uh, it's the, the effect of um, you know, the global economy on all societies, is that we've we've lost that entanglement with our own uh, with our with our own habitat, and for me the answer really is is that we've got to actually speed up just like the forests are speeding up. We've got to speed up that reacquaintance with the natural world. We've got to learn their names. We've got to learn their their trajectories. We've got to learn their properties. What they where they grow, what they what they can do for us, what they can provide for us, what we need from them, what we can do for them, because how it goes for humans will depend to a large extent on how it goes for the natural world. And uh, if we don't know what's happening um, and we don't know what uh, what we can eat, for example, as the crops shift and, uh, and things change, then we're going to be worse off. So the urgency is to mainstream ecology in, in education and to uh, reacquaint ourselves with the forest. It's, it's actually quite a, a radically hopeful message that I have at the end of the book. Yeah. And I think the thing about using trees as the harbinger, uh, what's so dramatic and powerful about it is that we usually think of them as creatures that live on different timescales than us, right? Um, whereas, mm. but what we are seeing is these creatures that do live on different timescales than us are still changing within human lifetimes. Like we can see it happening to organisms and ecosystems uh, where in normal circumstances we wouldn't be alive long enough to note uh, true changes in the boreal forest. And yet we are seeing it on these compressed timelines. So we have just a couple of minutes left here, Ben. I I'd like to actually sort of fly back to where we started in Alaska. Uh, because you had mm. talked about, um, you know, things that we can learn and observe um, and that Alaska was one of the places where much of that that learning and observing is going on. So can you tell us more about about what you learned in Alaska? Um, so I, I think two things there. One is um, the role that, you know, how complicated this the algorithm of nature is and how tiny, tiny things can flip it one way or another. So the beaver in Alaska um, 
when the forest moves, of course, the animals that eat the forest move with it. And the beavers are now eating uh, the, the, the nascent shrubs in the tundra and they are creating beaver ponds, which attracts more heat, which accelerates uh, the change. So you have the whole of the tundra boiling up in, the, in this way and becoming forest. And the so that's the, the the first thing is just this one tiny species makes massive difference and that and and we have that the ability to to do those kinds of interventions to to flip the script the script one way or another or to preserve individual species and and assist their migration but the second is the history of humans in Alaska and in particular the Koyukon um it, who's who have this remarkable um, perspective and uh, not even ideology. It's a value system for how uh, what they call the world that Raven made um, and how we how we must respect uh, all of those elements of of the natural world, how we should interact with them. You don't even there's a wonderful story of of a young woman who's told off for talking about the ice because the ice will be offended that you mentioned it by name. Um, and that kind of fear and respect, that kind of sacredness, um, is, I think, where, where what we need to get back to. And it's absolutely not incompatible with uh, modern technological life. I mean, we've only characterised um, 6% of the, the, the chemicals in and the compounds in the boreal forest. And out of that 6%, we've had aspirin and prostacycline and all these other things. There is a whole world out there where we could be designing cities alongside trees. It could be very different. Well, the new book is The Tree Line, The Last Forest and the Future of Life on Earth. It's written by Ben Rollins, who joined us today from Gloucester, England. Ben, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you and to travel alongside you through the world's great boreal forests. Thank you so very much. Thank you very much. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. On Point.